one of the uh, the aspects of that prior to CIDR being deployed was the Daniel, Kim Hubbard, and I uh, were directed by Postel to allocate contiguous blocks of class Cs, which in order to meet the the size requirement of the requester. But that meant that since each one of those class Cs were independently routed, it caused a, a significant increase in the number of routes that were on the internet, which caused the router vendors and the network operators to get nervous, resulting in them imposing what are called prefix length filters that would disallow for longer prefixes, the smaller amount of address space from being routed. And this created a an interesting tension between the enterprises and end users who wanted to get address space and the ISPs who were trying to protect their routers from falling over because they didn't have enough address space. And the regional internet registries were, at the time, uh, sort of in the middle trying to figure out how to come up with policies that would not cause the ISPs to beat on us or not cause the uh, enterprise address holders to beat on us. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm not talking to anyone. Instead, we've taken the audio of the APNIC 56 panel session, which discussed the 30-year history of APNIC and edited it very lightly to put to air as a podcast. It's a little longer than usual, because we have quite a lot of history to cover and people to hear from. Jeff Houston, APNIC's chief scientist, facilitated the panel session at the recent meeting held in Kyoto, Japan. Jeff shared his own memories of the establishment of APNIC. The panel discussed the problem space APNIC has occupied at the nexus of internet address management regional internet governance and development, and capacity building in the Asia-Pacific region. Jeff was joined by six guests. Elise Garrick, a co-founder of Nanog and the principal investigator and shaper of the NSFNet backbone routing architecture in the 1980s and 1990s. Elise also took the IANA function at ICANN. Alongside Elise, we're going to hear from Jun Marai, of the WIDE project, often called the father of the internet in Japan. Along with Jeff, Jun was one of the principal founders of APNIC. We also hear from David Conrad, the first full-time employee of APNIC and the founding director general from 1993 to 1998. David was also general manager of IANA. From APNIC CC, we have Akinori Maimura, who is General Manager of JPNIC and was Chair of the APNIC EC from 2003 to 2015. Akinori is joined by Gurub Apadaya from Limelight Networks and more recently Amazon. Gurab was Chair of the APNIC EC from 2016 to 2022. The sixth member of the panel is Paul Wilson, APNIC's Director General since 1998. Good morning, all. Welcome to the next session in APNIC 56. If you don't know already, my name is Jeff Houston, and I'm APNIC's chief scientist. 
And I'll introduce the other folk on the stage, or they will introduce themselves in a second. But let me kind of set some of the scene for this about what we're doing, because this is AP Nick 30 years later. I'm actually surrounded by some of my best friends over 30 years, possibly a bit longer, working in this industry, but in particular working in APNIC, building an entirely new communication system. And this has been great, just an unbelievable opportunity. And not only has it been an opportunity for me, but I have worked with stellar people in this region and you're seeing them here. It's fantastic. Now, this is about the last 30 years and these days, there's only one way to find the truth. Ask Bard. (laughs) So I did. And these are the top 10. It's in very small font, but, you know, it's full of quite plausible and believable lies. I particularly liked the launch of the uh, no action policy, whenever that was, and the exhaustion dashboard seven years after exhaustion. I just love this stuff. If this is the history that we're going to believe in 30 years' time, civilization is doomed (laughs) because plausible nonsense is just not the way we do things. So quite frankly, it's time to actually ask the people who are doing it. And these are the folk who are doing it. And so what we're going to do is wander through that history. And I've got some highlights in the next few slides. But before I get into that, I'd like from this side, ladies first, to actually get each of you to introduce yourselves and a bit of the reason why you are here. And then we will get back into a timeline of what happened and and your own involvement. My name's Elise Garrick, and I was hired way back before many of you were born in... (laughs) 1987, to work on the NSFNet backbone. And why am I talking? Tell me again. (laughs) RFC 1466. Ah, that's the reason. And well, it started with RFC 1366. So um, I'm going to go back a little further that there was a group called the FEPG, the Federal Engineering Planning Group in the United States, which had been designated by the FNC. It's all acronyms the Federal Networking Council, and they had gotten together with RARE, R-A-R-E, which stands for RAZO, I don't know, something. (laughs) Anyway, it's a European group, and the FNC and RARE decided that they needed some coordination for this merging networking stuff since the Department of Defense in the United States was going to run away from it. So, they created the FEPG, where I met some of the people on this dais, and we were always getting together trying to figure out what to do. And so one of the things was, uh, oh, there's a scarcity of IPv4 addresses, and what should we do? Let's make the IEPG, the Intercontinental Engineering Planning Group, which is how we got connected with particularly people within the Asia-Pacific region. And that group said, okay, well... What can we do? And I don't know. Everyone else has their own version of the story, but. We'll get back to it. So (laughs) Okay. So anyway, I sort of got dubbed as the person who would kind of talk to John Postel because on the NSF net backbone, we worked very closely. And if you don't know who John Postel is, Google him, you'll find out. But um, he was the IANA and the first and only really big IANA. And so I was dubbed to talk to him about this thing about 
well, we're running out of addresses and there's the other parts of the world that aren't getting any because it was started in the U.S. So we had kind of a head start. If it were a race, we were ahead. So I met with John and I said, what can we do? And he had to talk to his bosses, which were the Department of Defense, which hired him. And we went back and forth. And of course, I'm consulting with my peers in the FEPG and the IEPG. And we came up with this concept of, and ripe, I didn't get to them yet. Rare creative. Let's do the stories later. I was just doing the introductions right now. Oh, gosh. I'm Elise Garrett. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. uh, My name is Akinori Maimura. I think I'm here because I uh, served in the executive council from the year 2000 to year 2016. And then uh, I started the involvement of the IP address management in 1997 when I joined the JPNX IP address committee. And then at the time, JPNIC has the independent IP address policy under uh, 1466, by the way. Then uh, we are thinking about the policy, JPNIC's IP address policy. And then we need to have it consistent to the APNIC one and uh, that we worked on uh, 1999 and 2000. That's maybe that core part of my involvement here. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Jeff. I'm the kid of the block here. <laughs> and uh, I'm Goro Vada. I'm, I'm from Nepal, but uh, now I live in the United States. And like Akinori here, I served on the executive council uh, from 2011 till earlier this year. And uh, half of that as a the chair. And I think I got in just around early uh, 2001 or so about into the APNIC. And I did get address space from David. So I remember that stuff. Uh, before Paul and uh, went through, did a bunch of stuff around APNIC policy, shared the policy, saying, had some fun, and we'll talk about it later. To my left is David Conrad, but before he starts, let me recount where I first met him. We're in chest high seawater in this beautiful place in a small beach in the island of Kauai in the Hawaiian Islands, <laughs> having a very important networking meeting, as I recall. <laughs> Yep, I'm uh, David Conrad, and I got here primarily because I didn't think Hawaii was humid enough, and I decided Tokyo uh, was a, a better uh, place for my skin. No, um, I actually uh, came at the uh, the kind offer of uh, the person sitting to my left. He asked me to come to Japan to help out uh, with a couple of projects, and at the time, it seemed like a good idea. Whether it turned out for the best for the Asia-Pacific Rim region, that's a completely separate story, but I've uh, been involved with APNIC, uh, you could probably say, since the beginning. Okay, um, this is Jim Rai. The reason I'm sitting here is there, I was the first person probably saying that, Jeff, how about creating the APNIC? So that's the reason I'm sitting here. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Wilson from APNIC, and... Uh, I'm sitting here, I think, thanks to every one of the people on my right who are either involved with creating the internet itself or AP Nick, or if not creating it, then playing a role on which my support was dependent as chairs of the EC. So I've, I go back to before AP Nick to the early internet in, in Australia in the, uh, in around 1990. And that's when it all started in terms of this journey. Thanks. So let me now. Push that. You've now seen everyone here. There are their names. And I'm going to move on again. And we're going to get back into at least where you were. But let's again put some background here. Because Jun and I 
were both running national academic and research networks. But, you know, a network needs addresses. And the only way to get them at the time was to send a fax. Do you remember faxes? <laughs> and it was a strange fax. It had all kinds of rubbish on it. And, and we had to fax it to the folk called the SRI, Stanford Research International, and plead with them uh, for IP addresses. The problem was they were funded by not us. They were funded actually, I think it was still a DARPA contract, and they didn't have much money, and we were absolutely overwhelming the two people who were working on it, and something had to be done. Now, the only reason why we were doing this was the National Science Foundation had started a massive academic and research network in the United States, and the rest of us said, me too. And so we looked to the National Science Foundation going, make it better. Elise, what did you do? <laughs> we made it better. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to do more than that? I talked before too long. You heard all the acronyms before, the FNC, the IAPG, the FEPG, etc. And so it wasn't just me, but I think NASA funded the link to Hawaii and that link to Hawaii then hooked up to Japan and other parts of the Asia Pacific, Australia and New Zealand. And I got an invitation from Jeff Houston to come to AARNet and talk about this National Science Foundation network that was going to be built. And all I remember about that trip was all the animals I saw that I'd never seen before. <laughs> I thought they'd had a gate open in the zoo and the birds escaped. But anyway, it was a way that we became friends. First touch base. June and Torben Nielsen would host PACCOM meetings, which would then allow us to get together with the National Science Foundation engineers that were on our team at Merit. And in case you don't know what Merit is, it's a consortium of state-funded universities in Michigan. And they were the lead on the contract with the National Science Foundation in the U.S. to build the backbone. So, Jeff, is that what you wanted to hear? That's kind of where I was because both June and I were on the other side of the ocean. Correct. And we had national communities that we wanted to support. So, June... What did you do about addresses? How did you solve the problem? Yeah, the, maybe two things, right? And uh, unlike uh, National Science Foundation funding uh, U.S. networking, and the Japan government didn't understand about the internet at all, right? That time, I mean, computer network at all. So if I say at all, then, you know, that's <laughs> going to cause a problem. But anyway, X25 or whatever. Therefore, the... It was not recognized properly, at least. And uh, therefore, uh, we are like a gang, right? And then the networking people working together, we started up uh, JUNet and the White Project. So the first part is that we are not recognized by the government. Therefore, the you know, engineer only, right? That's number one. The second one is, uh, I remember the uh, Postel and the, those people sometimes asking, that, uh, okay, we need to be international. We need to be global. And uh, then, you know, of course, at that time, everything was so U.S.-centric, right? And uh, so 
in order to avoid that concept about the US, no, nobody used the word US-centric that time, but okay, let's pick one from across the Pacific, one from Europe. And those are the Daniel Kallenberg and the Jim Murray. Okay, so, so we were kind of, uh, I believe, excuses to them <laughs> that uh, this is not the U.S. only thing. <laughs> so that's how I, we started. So we had a non-government support, and then they, you know, we are kind of alone in the far away uh, from the United States across the Pacific. So then, they, you know, I talked with uh, Daniel. Is Daniel here now? No, okay. Daniel about that he visited he was at my house and they're not talking about what the roles are you know type of thing but it's a very much uh, you know how we started thank you now at the same time this young lad to my left was working in the research department at the uh, University of Hawaii under Dr. Torben Nielsen and um, we were doing a project funded by NASA and it was called the Pacific Communications Network, PACCOM. And not only did it have an annual boondoggle in Hawaii every year, which was very informative, but David was working away at bigger things. And at some point, he reappeared in Japan. Take up the story. <laughs> uh, right. So I was working at the University of Hawaii under Torben and... Uh, we were doing various researchy things, trying to understand the dynamics of the network. And I had decided at a certain point that while I liked Hawaii, I needed to move on. And Marai Sensei said, well, would you like to come over to Japan and help start up the first commercial ISP in Japan? His name was Internet Initiative Japan. And I said, sure, hey, why not? So popped over to Japan, put all of my belongings in two boxes that I, I uh, sent through a U.S. postal system, and it actually arrived, which these days is kind of shocking. But so landed in Japan, started working at IIJ. They had some challenges getting a special Type 2 electrocommunications license. And as a result, weren't able to actually provide services other than essentially a dial-up service, uh, UUNet, if you happen to uh, know the technology. But along came this idea of having a regional, what would become a regional internet registry. At the time, it was a, an experiment called the APNIC experiment. And Marais and Say asked, hey, you know, would you be willing to uh, help on that particular project? Masaya Nakayama was going to be the lead researcher and would be under Hirobaru Sensei. Uh, and I said, sure, it's something fun. So jumped into that and proceeded to go to a lot of meetings in a lot of different countries, a lot of really amazing people, and began to put together a sort of a informal discussion group that would try to come up with ways of actually handing out IP addresses. When someone would come in with a request, I would send the note out to this group, informal group mailing list of folks saying, so this looks like it could use a slash 22, or this looks like it could use a slash 24. What do you all think? And people said, yeah, or if they responded. So uh, that was sort of the beginnings of what eventually would turn into APNIC. Thank you. Something happened in that space, which you glided across, but you might have sensed Elise was working for the university system. I was working for the university system. 
you're inside the university system, but all of a sudden you're doing a commercial ISP. And it was happening everywhere, including the NSF. When did the NSF get out? Not till 1995. But it left. It did leave. And it was an ugly parting. But (laughs) (laughs) the National Science Foundation never planned to be in it for a lifetime. They actually had taken over from the Department of Defense when the Department of Defense wanted to shut down ARPANET for ARPANET's sake because NASA and Energy Sciences were building their own networks for their own people. And so um, in 1985, I think it was, they built 56 kilobit backbone. And then they put out a solicitation in 1986 because it became congested. It was so popular. But that backbone had only connected, I think it was six supercomputer sites. It really wasn't to the academic universities unless they had a supercomputer site. And they decided they needed their academics to be able to get to the supercomputers. So they put out a solicitation in 1987. Merit in combination with the state of Michigan, they threw in some money. IBM and MCI won that award. And uh, there was so much turmoil in the academic community because they couldn't believe that IBM could deliver anything. And they also uh, weren't too sure about MCI at the time. And Merit was a very small regional network in the eyes of places like MIT and UCSD and, and other larger, better known names, I guess. So is that what you wanted, Jeff? Yeah, and, and you were around as well. Yeah, I think not only my end. I, mean, I was uh, communicating with a person called Rick Adams in the United States. And amazingly, they started the UUCP, the business network, right? Then onto an IP-based one, which is called Alternet. And then you know, I've been communicating with him very well. Is there any time that people will pay for the networking, right? And so uh, it's a very much, uh, you know, the Rick's uh, move afterwards. I mean, starting the Alternet, UUNet, and MCI. And then you know, it's amazing that he was a very much, uh, you know, kind of a strong move toward the commercial network in the United States. So it was stimulating all over the world, including Japan. And uh, therefore, the White Project, which was a nonprofit research group, decided that to start up the commercial company in Japan. So basically, it was a discussion with Rick Adams. And then, you know, that company needs a people, but at the same time, the analysis and the complicated things. Therefore, I asked uh, Randy to join and uh, help starting up uh, IIJ, and uh, then they went to IAPNIC. But uh, talking about the commercial network, the, what I remember in the past in the history was, uh, Jeff, your work at the Bodega Bay, remember? And uh, then in IPG, it's a current, right? So the government owned the the national networks, international network as well. And the operators group was called IPG. And then we had a meeting together always, right? And so the big, uh, you know, strong government people said, open up the door between the IPG and the current. And then telling the chair of the, the IPG that now 
we discuss enough, and then you do this, you do that. And when Jeff was the chair of IPG, then the Jeff talking to only to us, and then we're going to divorce. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? We're going to divorce from the current, the government network, because we are now carrying a lot of commercial traffic now. Therefore, it's not consistent with what they are working. So that was a historical moment, I believe, at the Bodega Bay meeting, Jeff did, but uh, it's not on the book anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, what do you mean? But uh, to my mind, no one more personifies that move from a sort of an academic and networking focus into commercialization. But the result was... Who looks after the infrastructure? Because we're all relying on the echoes of the good folk at ARPA and then relying on the NSF to basically look after names and addresses. And the problem was that as we were getting more commercial, there was no reason for the US to keep on funding the rest of us. And so over in Europe, Daniel Karenberg came along and said with Rob Bloxell, we'll look after Europe, just leave it to us. And oddly enough, it was Steve Goldstein on the NSF who said to John Postel, give them some addresses, give them some AS numbers and get them out of here. (laughs) Just make it go away. And someone else was looking at that conversation, weren't they, David? (laughs) What was your role at that point? And I think we're around 93 and this move from working in IIJ into the APNIC experiment. Right. So started out with that APNIC experiment and the way we sort of did the transition from uh, a U.S.-based entity providing the address base to an Asia-Pacific-based entity providing the address base to regional ISPs was initially, anytime a request would come in, I would review it and make a recommendation to Kim Hubbard and her team at Internic in Ruston, Virginia, And they would come back a day or two later and say, okay, here it goes, and give me the block of address space that I would forward back onto the requester, which was obviously not particularly efficient or rational at the time because Kim never actually rejected any of the requests. So during this period, I was also having a number of meetings with John Postel saying, okay, so what is it actually going to take? What are the requirements for APNIC to get sort of control over the block of address space. And John said, yeah, we should probably come up with a set of uh, requirements. And I said, yeah, so what are those requirements? And he said, yeah, we should probably come up with a set of those requirements. After pestering him for a number of months, he finally said, fine, here, here's 202 slash 7, delegated for address space to be used in the Asia Pacific Rim region. Just go away, leave me alone. So the initial out delegation for 202 slash 7 was actually to me personally, which I thought was incredibly bizarre, particularly since someone to the right of me had already acquired about, what was it, a quarter of that? Yeah, yeah, out of the entire Asia Pacific Rim address space for use in AARnet. It's a big country. It's a big country, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lots of kangaroos. But so at that point, we had actually started to do the allocations. I guess one of the requirements John had put on me was to actually set up a who is server 
to actually document the uh, delegations of address space. Of course, stole that from Wright because I wasn't about to write any code anymore. I learned my lesson. Um, so uh, with the who is server up and running, a beautiful piece of Perl for anyone who happens to know that language. And the address 202 slash 7 block, uh, we just started uh, allocating away with no budget and me. So we started off with APNIC being a project around the region. And when you weren't in planes, I think you called Tokyo home. I don't know. And I think John Marai was still giving you some support and, and the folk at JPNIC to do this work out of Japan. How did that work out for you? Um, so it actually worked out reasonably well. I did think about changing my postal address to uh, United Airlines, but did resist that. The folks who were actually helping out in the earliest days of APNIC it were obviously the wide project, JPNIC, IIJ, because IIJ was actually paying my salary, even though I was actually doing not really IIJ work. And that switched later to another organization called ARI. The environment within Japan was incredibly supportive of all the work we were doing. As I mentioned before, I'd actually tried to create an informal sort of advisory group that would basically help me out in trying to define the policy for allocations at the time. Folks, uh, including Teha Park from Korea, Jeff, uh, John Holker from New Zealand, just uh, there were like 20 people from all over the region. I tried to find people in the different countries that APNIC was trying to serve. I think Che Hu, who is around here probably somewhere, was one of those earliest folks as well. And that structure actually worked reasonably well because it was all sort of cooperative. Everyone was trying to ensure that the resources were being made available to the ISPs as they needed them without too much overhead. But as these sorts of things grow, overhead actually becomes necessary. Let me share, because he's uh, probably, he's too polite to say bad things about Japan. Uh, so uh, uh, maybe maybe I should do that. And the location was rented by Wild Project and then I get them used. Uh, the new buildings in the new land in the Tokyo Bay and the brand new building called the Telecom Center. Okay, that was the building. If you are familiar with the Japanese movie, scene and any new fancy movie is going to be crushed by Godzilla. <laughs> okay, that is a promise. And then the CEO of that building was asked by a Toho movie company that can the Godzilla crashing your new building? And then the CEO thought uh, that's going to be a good advertisement. That say, then the you know, CEO said yes. And then uh, before they are inviting all the clients into the building because they are crashed the building. <laughs> Therefore, everybody afraid of uh, getting into that building. <laughs> Therefore, the CEO came to me and the white project, I mean, it can be free. So can you use that building? <laughs> so it was far away, just a tiny, tiny LRT type of uh, transportation from the center of uh, Tokyo. And if some, the new building, a new <laughs> land, therefore some good events happening and uh, there is a long line mm -hmm. to get into the office. So then, you know, so Randy started to hear the, all the complaints 
that uh, they want to be at the office, they had to wait for the several trains. Oh, no. Yeah, because if something happened on that island. So, uh, by the way, it's all fixed. So, uh, <laughs> you, you enjoyed that round, uh, Odaiba round now. But anyway, that time, he was complaining about that. And then he's explicitly talking about the, we're going to get out of uh, Tokyo. And then they're looking for some new places. So I think you overachieved when you wanted to get out of Tokyo. Before crashed by Tokyo. Yeah, out of Tokyo and eventually on to Brisbane, which is a bit of a way of getting out of Tokyo. And at this point, we were having discussions around APNIC of where to go and the move to Brisbane. And a number of things kind of happened quite quickly. In that year, I think you handed the reins over to Paul Wilson. We thought this was a lifelong occupation, David, <laughs> and I was on the board at the time and my eyebrows were bouncing off the ceiling and the floor going, what have you done to us? Did you always see this as just something to start and then, then head on with your life? Actually, I'd never really thought that far ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the situation for me, the APNIC had become stabilized, it had a membership, it had fee schedules, it actually operationally was uh, reasonably reasonably stable. One of the challenges that I'd had was finding staff to come into work at APNIC. I was able to early on convince a couple of people, Yoshiko Chong Fong and Kyoko Day, both who were at University of New Mexico, but who are Japanese nationals to come back. I didn't have to deal with uh, any of the visa issues. And one of the things that Rai-sensei did not actually mention was when APNIC was first starting out, we had an office at the Keio University Shonan campus, which is a bit of a hike. It takes a little while to get from where I lived in Ongikubo, which is oh, on. That's yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it was actually, it was great. It, I mean, it was a very nice office. And then we also had an office for a little while at the um, uh, United Nations University, which was also very nice. I was actually right in downtown, very nice section of Tokyo, Ayama. And we had uh, for a little while an office at the top of the KDD building in Otemachi, which had a spectacular view. So we kept sort of bouncing around. We ended up in Odaiba. And Odaiba was actually, aside from the challenge about the trains, which at the time it was very nice. It was a driverless train, a very uh, punctual, but very small. And anytime there's, since I was mentioning, anytime there's a conference, the line to get onto the train was really long. But main sort of situation for me was I was a, a technical person in a executive administrative role in a environment that all of a sudden in 1997-ish became politically very active. The U.S. government had come out with a policy paper talking about the privatization of the internet. And I felt as a, an American sitting in Japan that it was really, really not a good idea for me to be driving APNIC. And I felt that there needed to be someone from the region who actually was in charge of APNIC. The shift to Brisbane was a, a side effect of the challenges of trying to manage a budget in Tokyo 
which was fairly expensive, dealing with visa challenges, trying to get staff in. So actually, the uh, approval of the APNIC Executive Council had hired KPMG to do a survey across the entire Asia-Pacific Rim region for good places to do business for a nonprofit, ideally one that was tax-exempt. And that turned out to be quite an exercise because tax exemption uh, was not a thing through most of the Asia-Pacific Rim region. We ended up, the final list included Brisbane, Melbourne, Singapore, and one other that I forgot. Yeah, Kuala Lumpur. At that time, Kuala Lumpur, there was this technical city that they were trying to build because there was money flowing all over the place. Uh, This was just before the crash of the bubble. So after sort of sitting down and looking at what the tax implications were, we found a, I don't want to say a scam, a interesting approach to allow for APNIC to be non-taxed, to be tax exempt within Australia that I understand somewhat later became a bit of a problem, but I'll blame the lawyers because they're always easy targets to blame. So, so at that time, we found ourselves in a very trendy part of Brisbane, if it has such a thing, but I'm assured it does. I'm not from Brisbane, in Milton. And we hired a new DG, Mr. Wilson. What did you think you were getting yourself into? <laughs> you warned me several times. You laughed a lot uh, for the first year or so after I took the job. I did have some idea of what I was getting into. Unlike you, Jeff, I am from Brisbane, so APNIC came to me back the then. The least we could do. I didn't have very much to do with APNIC beforehand. It always seemed a long way away. But I, uh, after university and uh, University Computer Center and networking DECnet and UUCP and so on, I got a bit annoyed. This is a bit like the internet story, I guess. A bit annoyed with the academic environment and left that. I got the travel bug and traveled a bit and came back. And found this new ISP starting in, which was starting in 1989, which became the first independent network to connect to Arnet. Thank you very much. You were part of that. For, so thank you for the 9.6 kilobits that we, uh, that we I had. I hope you looked after them very carefully. We thrashed that line, <laughs> much to the chagrin of the regional university that was the sort of hop down the line. Anyway, long story short. I uh, did connect to the internet then. I took a Class C from John Postel, and I knew at the time I could have got a Class B, but I thought I only need a Class C for now, just take a Class C, and got the connection uh, with quite a lot of trouble back then with actually trying to work out how to do this without having a network to tap into. And the manipulating these IP addresses was such a, such a trial, I actually dreamt about it. <laughs> one of those dreams you have when you're really tackling an intellectual problem. I still remember IP addresses, a swarm of them in 3D circling around my head and annoying the crap out of me and I woke up. So that lasted a few years. But in that time, I was uh, doing international work. I ended up working for an international development agency and doing projects in quite a few countries around the region. So I guess unlike the average Brisbane boy, I probably actually came to the job interview at APNIC with a few credentials beyond the technical. And I was uh, offered that job. Uh, I'd met uh, David a couple of times before that through IDRC in Mongolia on one occasion. I walked into the APNIC office, which was an interesting place, which had a childcare centre colour scheme, thanks to Anne Ward. (laughs) uh, David's first uh, words to me were, nice suit. (laughs) No, No one else had a suit. Got the job and that was with... 
for other people. It was a it was a fascinating, fascinating thing. I think it should still have been called the Apinic Experiment at that time, and maybe we should still call it the Apinic Experiment because <laughs> yeah, it so kind of feels a bit like that over the many years. But that's how I came to Apinic. I had received addresses from John Postel, then received a few from Apinic, and I realised that David's words, uh, there will be pain, made sense because it wasn't easy to get addresses from Apinic as it shouldn't have been. And yeah, that, that's where I started with Apinic. It was Tori Takahashi, actually. It was well, uh, the, the, Logically, yeah. he would be the next person here, and unfortunately, Tori did pass away quite recently, yeah. and, and we do remember him with fondness because Jun had passed the baton on and uh, it was passed, baton was passed on yet again around a period where I think there were a number of pressures happening to us which were really starting to bite. V4 had an end, and even sort of in the early 2000s, it was pretty clear that that end was nigh. And we seriously did not think you could run a network without addresses. Turns out you can, and we've been doing it for the last 20 years. God knows how. But, you know, we thought the exhaustion of B4 was going to be calamitous. We really needed to work at how to fairly distribute what was left across a massively populous zone, a region. China hadn't really done much by then. IPv6 needed a huge amount of attention. The work the IETF had done on IPv6 addressing plans was a joke. And all the RIRs were working on how to make this better because the work was irrelevant. And then all of a sudden, someone decided that they liked AS numbers and we ran out of them, a mere 16,000 and we ran short. And so we had to figure out what to do about it and how to manage that. So there's a lot of work on the policy side of running these registries. And at the time, it was under your guidance on the EC, Akinori-san, that we're working on this. What are your recollections from the time in kind of being on the EC as we were working quite frenetically to become responsible adults. Thank you, Jeff. Other sources for are not really linked to my EC office, but my own the assignment at the JPNIC. For example, yeah, the other sports history of the IP other sports is a little bit interesting. First, I was involved in IP address policy. There was RFC 1466. Eris is the is the author. And then uh, that was in uh, 1997, it was being discussed uh, about uh, the so-called uh, 1466 BIS discussion, which is actually for a discussion toward uh, establishing the RSC 2050 uh, IP address registry guideline or something. And that it's really strict, the criteria for the obtaining the IP address space and a really conservative way. So uh, that's the RSC 2050, which was established in 1997 or 8 or something. Maybe so, right, like around that. Then I don't think that many people here can uh, imagine that the IP address policy had been discussed in IETF. No longer that. Now, so uh, the RC 2050 was the last address policy ish document uh, which produced by the IETF. And then afterward, the IP address uh, policy were genuinely discussed and established in the RIL. That's a very big change there. Then uh, IPv6 policy or now that it is genuinely discussed and established in the RIL arena. 
And then uh, the night uh, 1999 was the just the provisional policy, and we were working on. I remember uh, in uh, the early zero zeros era, like uh, 2001, two three, where we were talking about uh, interim uh, IPv6 policy. That was really a really interesting discussion to set the original notion and the original theory how to manage IPv6 address in an efficient way. So it is really exciting discussion, for example, to set out HD ratio. It was really mathematical model for me and hard to understand, <laughs> but it works. So uh, it is the, the quite a big recollection of mine for the, if it comes to IP address policy. Just the, the initial. Let's talk about just a little bit around the 2000s because address exhaustion was known about quite early on. And we knew we were going to run out. And we originally had a model called CIDR, which divided the address space up into three blocks. It's the Goldilocks. It's the, you know, the bears. It's either massively big, 24 million. Well, so that's why we went to CIDR. We had class A, massively big, class C, incredibly small. Because as soon as laptops came along, 256 machines was a minor department, not an entire campus. And these class Bs, which were kind of the right size, but there were so few of them, that was never going to fly. And in fact, the work was done in 1989 about going, well, we've got about three years before disaster and we needed to fix this. And you were then part of this group, the road group, the road group. Have a microphone and let's talk a little bit about the road group and how we were going to fix this problem that we were going to run out of addresses by about 1992. Um, so the Rogue Group was primarily people from the Wright area and from Merritt. And we started looking at it and we said, well, why do you have to have these artificial boundaries, a, a slash eight, a slash 16, whatever. And so then we said, well, if you don't have the boundaries, you can give smaller blocks or medium-sized blocks because that was the biggest problem. You could either get a boatload of addresses or you could get this little drip in the bucket. So um, there were ongoing discussions about this. And of course, it had to involve the IETF folks kind of under the water. And uh, finally, I think it was Daniel Karenberg from Ripe that actually drafted the CIDR proposal and Jakob Frechter from um, IBM was quite instrumental in it. From our group, um, I was involved. Jessica Yu was involved. And so CIDR, classless internet. Into domain. Into domain. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is it's classless addressing. And so that was born, but that really made a big change in the way you had to do all your tools how you had to configure routers, what the routers could and couldn't accept because they didn't used to look for things that were in different bit sizes than they had been. So there was a lot of work that went into implementing it once we got it adopted. One of the, uh, the aspects of that prior to CIDR being deployed was the Daniel, Kim Hubbard, and I uh, were directed by Postel to allocate contiguous blocks of class Cs, which in order to meet the, the size requirement of the requester, 
But that meant that since each one of those Class Cs were independently routed, it caused a, a significant increase in the number of routes that were on the internet, which caused the router vendors and the network operators to get nervous resulting in them imposing what are called prefix length filters that would disallow for longer prefixes, the smaller amount of address space, from being routed. And this created a, an interesting tension between the enterprises and end users who wanted to get address space and the ISPs who were trying to protect their routers from falling over because they didn't have enough address space. And the regional internet registries were, at the time, uh, sort of in the middle trying to figure out how to come up with policies that would not cause the ISPs to beat on us or not cause the uh, enterprise address holders to beat on us. So what happened inside AP Nick Paul? As all of a sudden the work got more complex, we found ourselves in the middle of all of these forces. What did it mean for us as an organization to respond to those challenges at the time? Well, actually, I just looked it up. The meeting that Akinori joined the EC at was in Brisbane, and it was the first of the second meetings. It was APNIC 10. It was in August 2000. It was also when we launched the SIGs. So we had the address policy SIG. And so I'd been at, at APNIC for a year and a half by the time that came about, kind of finding my feet, I guess. And it was Anne Lord who, who was really the one who was behind getting, you know, she'd worked at RIPE and she, she wanted the, the community thing happening. So there was the SIGs, there was the inter, intersessional meeting, the second meeting of the year. And so really the, the policy SIG was the, the launch of the more formal formalized policy development processes because things were getting quite complicated <laughs> by then. I mean, I understand that the the reason uh, for the RIRs being formed was that CIDR allocations, CIDR-based allocations required, they provided a lot of flexibility, but they required a lot more questions to be asked. Size allocation could be made. So we were grappling with all of that. And, and I guess, um, as I recall, basing those decisions on basically on right policies, but without a formal process of, uh, of APNIC community getting together. So yeah, we got together. It was from 2000. It was from the exactly the time when I still remember Akinori's acceptance speech on the EC actually at that meeting. A younger man at the time was a good while ago. And so that's when that started. And from that point on, we did have the policy SIG. We were then, we got uh, very quickly then into the world of ICANN and the address supporting organization and the the global policies and so forth. So it, it really was a, a sort of a time of recognition of, of a lot of need for regional and global policies. And I think also I'd be interested to hear from Akinori about the JPNIC policy process, because I think JPNIC also quite early on decided that it would establish a national policy development process that would dovetail in and harmonize with the APNIC policies. And that was a pretty cool and typical activist you know, act from, uh, from JPNIC. JPNIC's case is a little bit really special because the JPNIC has its own other space, which was grabbed by June. <laughs> then <laughs> the, we need to set up the policy for that. And then the APNIC was established and the APNIC is a quite authentic source of the IP numbers. And then we need to adjust our own JPNIC policy to APNIC. So that's uh, some explanation for the, this exception. So by about 2005, we had overachieved. We were going to make the remaining pools of V4 last until 2043. But no one had talked to Apple. Nobody. 
And when this thing got released, they started making a few hundred million a month. And the picture changed dramatically. We were under extraordinary pressure because this was now the mainstream. We weren't competing with telephone companies. There was none left. The internet was all that was left. And all of a sudden, the RIRs and ICANN and everyone around were part of this bigger picture of we are the world's public communications enterprise. Who's looking after it? How does this work? What is governance? And all of us were sucked in one way or another. But Paul, you were carrying the flag for APNIC in that. Do you, what, do you remember those days of sort of evolving from WISIS into the governance issue and how APNIC was involved in that? Well, it was a, a huge amount of confusion, I think, around the world. And uh, I'm very interested to talk about that. But just as a point of order and chronological order, I think we're skipping Garab's entry into the story to do your, to do your yeah. film. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I was going to do it just about now because it's all about this latest work. You see, it's, it's there, sorry. So <laughs> Garab has been very patient and I appreciate that. <laughs> These young lads need to wait for their turn. Mm-hmm. So we're on internet governance? Or, yeah, okay. Um, well, this is another interesting story about Japan, actually, because the internet governance stuff really kicked off through WISIS, which was the World Summit on Information Society. It was all about governments coming together and working out how they could advance the internet society in their countries, blah, blah, blah. And I think the internet was not on the public agenda at all. It was on the private agenda of a few people wanting to sort of make some changes. But but what governments heard through the first phase of WISIS was that there's this thing called the internet that's quite important to the information society. And And so by the end of that first round, they were saying, well, how is this thing's important, how's it governed? That's our concern, we must understand. And um, so they convened the working group on internet governance. And I've said it many times, that working group on internet governance didn't invent anything, it discovered the fact that the success of the internet was due to its unique form of governance, which was identified as multi-stakeholder governance. And so it was that was really identified as the, as the reason why the internet had been so successful. It was already very political at that time. I just remember one of the WISIS PrepCom meetings in Tokyo, actually, where there was a lot, a lot of contention about who was participating in this meeting. And it was absolutely governmental. It was absolutely high-level UN where the concern was not about the substance. It was concern about who was in the room, who had standing, who could talk. And so it was a classic sort of counterexample to the multi-stakeholder model. Over the coming years, when we had people from that environment who were who'd grown up with that, people like Marcus Kummer, who'd grown up with that and then were transformed into the internet environment, whether it was IETF or, or ICANN, and their eyes were wide, wide open to see that there was a different way of doing things. But I had a great deal of admiration for the Japanese, uh, the way the Japanese uh, handled some very tricky situations there uh, in the political sense, in order, I think, to really make this get this conference back to talking about substance and not politics. Well, Gaurab, you walked into this. We were now a smoothly running, well-oiled machine in APNIC. Everything was perfect and you became the chair of the EC. Give us some impressions of your early, early start in the EC. Yeah, I'll go back a little bit because Paul just talked about the WISIS in Tokyo was my first trip to Japan. And that was my first time working very closely with Paul. 
because I managed to be on the Nepalese government delegation to the WISIS PrepCon, which meant that I had access to stuff the non-government people could not get. And that was my first uh, time in Japan and my first time. I've known Paul when he was doing IDRC work, but that was when I jumped into this thing, working closely with Paul in the WISIS PrepCom and through the whole internet governance. And that is probably why it started coming more or got pulled into coming to APNAC and being more active with the policies uh, throughout that early decades. Uh, I think that is where we started working, at least with Paul, working closely with that. But yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I came into APNIC or the early, the 2010s or end of 2010. We had some fun, especially with you, Philip. I think I came into the EC just as we concluded some very, very contentious policies. The first, the transfer policy had to be updated. And I was the sixth chair <laughs> having to deal with Jeff actually telling Johnny, Johnny, go run your own RIR. Those were the fun days back in the day. But we got through both transfer policies, updated that, Prop 50 got updated, and then we also got the last class eight policies. Those were two really contentious ones. And that's why Brad says we had a no action policy after that. <laughs> the no action policy <laughs> is bad, said. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I came in after that on the EC at the conclusion of that. And I think since then, you know, we've had a bunch of policies, but it is mostly house cleaning. So that, that thing has established a lot. But what we kicked off was the formation of foundation. Because for APNIC, we do address policy, but one of the motos of the in our bylaws, there's things we are also going to invest time, money, and effort into internet development in the region. And I think that took off pretty much on the back of the internet governance things. We engaged with a lot of people outside of our core constituency of ISPs and people are looking for IP addresses. And then that followed through with, again, from Nepal, we needed a lot of training. We worked on the training programs. And that also, I think I remember this was a APNIC meeting in Brisbane, uh, where under Akinori chairmanship, we signed off on the formation of the foundation in 2012, 13, something like that. I remember it was this like windowless meeting room in Brisbane. That's what I remember. But since then, I think Foundation has grown. And thanks to June, to a large extent last year with the formation of the trust, I think that objective of APNIC, that where we work on the development of internet in the region, I think that's where we are really moving forward with. And I think that that is the right step for APNIC to move forward to. Well, I think we will still have you know, address policies changing. I think we have a policy for a slash 24 as a minimum allocation. Whereas I think when David handed over to Paul, slash 19 was a de facto space anybody got. Now we're down to slash 23 and looks like we'll go to slash 24. But that is a continuous process. I think we, we are in a very stable state now with everything. We did run out of V4 in 2011. We sort of did, sort of didn't. If you crawl to APNIC on all fours and write the right words and do the right begging, there's probably a slash 24 or two left in the kitty. We still haven't quite run out, but life is hard. There's not much left. That's true. Yeah. And we've run the recovery process, so I think we'll get a little bit more, but I think the world is going to be on V6. So the word on the street is if you want them, 50 bucks an address out there for the transfer people. 
So you've heard across where we are today, and Gaurav's given you a bit of a hint of the future. And to close this off, I'd actually like to ask each of you, and I'll start the other way, Paul, if you don't mind, because what the hell, and I have not given them any warning about this, right? So this is cold. This is theatre sport in action. Looking forward, and not too far, but just forward, where are the sort of the icebergs and the rainbows? What are the challenges and opportunities for not only APNIC, but this community in sort of from where we are now into the near-term future from your perspective? I've heard rumours of the imminent death or demise of RIRs for a very long time, whether it's because of IPv6 or or other factors. But it seems to me that the internet's only becoming more and more important. The internet, particularly under V6, will be relying on growth in public addresses being taken up by providers in larger blocks, admittedly, but still in blocks that need to be publicly registered. I've had a meeting today about the current challenges of using the registry, making sure that uh, registrations are accurate and how can we do a, a better job interfacing with people who are using it. So I really don't have the sense that the need for the registry is going to go away anytime soon. But I think there are some challenges and they come from some of the policy development, some of the laxness in policy definitions and policy development. So, I mean, one of the things that's coming up is leasing and that's something that is on the, and if I could step a a little bit, taking, putting a, a personal hat on here, I do see that as a, a big challenge. The, the RIRs, I think all document, certainly AP Nick does, and I think all others equivalently document the, the title equivalence of IP address allocations as a lease model. So the RIRs themselves lease addresses, addresses a lease for as long as the holder wants to maintain the lease. And uh, we do that leasing not at market rates, but at, a, at something like a cost rate, which is no more than a dollar per address per year at APNIC. And at the larger end of the scale, it's about 0.2 of a cent per address per year. That's our leasing charge, if you like to put it that way. So coexisting with a free market at 40 US dollars per address, we have people for whom an address holding becomes a lease a leasable commodity at a much, much higher rate. And that's a leasing agent that exists in competition with a group of registries which were never meant to compete with each other and which are still charging rates or recovering costs at very modest rates. And I think the temptation for gaining revenues, for gaining income out of uh, leasing of addresses in a very deregulated state where the maintenance of registration is not an incentive and very hard to enforce is really the the iceberg we're looking at because I I could see a a proliferation of, of competing private leasing agents who are simply deregulated. And IP addresses in that environment just are registered to the most competitive uh, leasing agent who can accumulate and, and reissue addresses with probably a reverse incentive on registration, actually, because there are many people these days who are leasing addresses who actually don't want to be registered. And one of the att- attractions of some of the um, the transfer and leasing options are to avoid registration, to avoid detection and avoid the fundamental reason why we're here, which is to collectively have stewardship over this global resource with a small number of manageable communities and registries. But that's definitely stepping into the policy space. And uh, so I'll put my APNIC hat back on now and shut up. I'll hand it over to John, but thank you for that. John, what do you see as, as 
challenges and opportunities for APNIC in the coming years? Oh, that, uh, I mean, interesting question. I'll show you. I have a, probably hundreds of answers to that. <laughs> One will be <laughs> Okay. Um, the interesting thing is about the, well, let me share my concern in this world about the internet, right? First, uh, because, uh, you know, when we had a discussion in a certain place that, uh, you know, how many of us knows about the internet architecture? What's the semantics of IP address? And then the, how the routing works? And uh, what is IP? What is the web? What the meaning of a one web? And, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And the, also the, including the people, very strong policy people, like uh, business people that uh, we now have a smart speaker, right? Like, uh, you know, hey, Google or uh, Alexa. So, okay, since we have smart speakers around, we don't need the internet, okay? <laughs> That's a very serious discussion in a certain places. So the meaning that architectural understanding of the internet is uh, very much losing in uh, some places, especially on the policy people, business leaders, and etc., and the people, uh, general users as well. So we have a smartphone, therefore we don't need the internet, right? Type of a discussion. So in that sense, then I think it's uh, really important that, uh, you know, the resources, architecture, and uh, then, you know, so even not everybody, but uh, it's a very broad area of uh, people should understand about the architecture of the internet, right? right. And uh, then, you know, especially the, that's one. And the second one is that, uh, as I mentioned in uh, during uh, my keynote speech yesterday, that uh, U.S. got the NSF historically, and uh, then, you know, there is a great power with uh, commercial and the uh, government working together. And the EU is similar. EU understands the importance of the internet now, and uh, then uh, also the engineers, the uh, commercial company existing. So the, what about the Asia Pacific? Do we have a kind of a single community or the agency to work on the region covering this one? And uh, which is uh, always has been always an issue of mine. And uh, then uh, this community is the uh, APNIC committee. Whatever the APNIC stands for or what, what the primary role of APNIC, I mean, address allocation maybe and the resource allocation maybe, but uh, we do have a more important role, I believe, in the region. And uh, this is a kind of a multi-stakeholder government people. I saw a lot of government people yesterday and the engineers and the, well, other part of the society who are interested in this. So to me, APNIC future is a very important community space to understand, including the resource allocation, but uh, also the architecture, understanding the architecture and uh, then the designing the future and the who's designing the future and uh, from the regional contribution to the global internet. That's a relationship with Africa, uh, Europe, America to be discussed. So, so I like a community space. I like uh, Epinic most, and then they're looking for the future. Thank you. David, what's in your future? <laughs> uh, sleep at some point. <laughs> um, 
So I guess I, looking at it at two ways, I'm, because of my personality, I tend to focus on the negative first. So one of the, the significant challenges that I see, not specifically related to APNIC, but APNIC is uh, going to, I believe, feel some of the, the heat from this is increasingly governments are seeing the internet. Always they see it as opportunities, but they also see the threats that are associated with the internet and the technologies the internet represents. The reaction because of past sins, apparently, or a previous life where I must have been a mass murderer, I've been involved more and more with governments in policy, internet-related policy discussions, uh, speaking a lot with folks with, uh, within the EC and uh, other governments. And I'm currently working with the U.S. government on internet governance-related stuff. Um, governments, uh, policymakers, regulators, essentially their job is to solve problems, right? People come to them complaining about certain things. They then pass laws or pass regulations attempting to address those things, which invariably cause other problems that people complain about and you get into a vicious cycle. I actually think that increasingly in the future, there's going to be uh, increased pressure on the existing mechanisms, the structures that have evolved over time to fix the threats that governments face. And if they don't, there will be laws and regulations passed that will try to do that, which will create all sorts of messes. So I think one, you know, looking at the other side, the opportunities, APNIC, I believe, perhaps because I really like the region and the folks in the region, I think has a sort of a unique opportunity to build a community that can help shepherd some of the folks that uh, Mariah Sensei has mentioned, the policymakers, the non-technical folks who think that they have Alexa, why do they need the internet, to actually understand more what it is that they're proposing to legislate and the implications of those legislations in ways that they can understand. The biggest challenge that I've seen in my experience has been that technologists try to relate to non-technologists by simplifying the technology, trying to make it understandable to folks. And then the non-technologist thinks that's how it works. When it doesn't work that way, we've just simplified things to a point where it's easier for you to understand, stop making laws on the thing that doesn't exist, that's too simple to ever exist, and actually understand the things that you're actually trying to legislate. I think APNIC, because of the diversity of the region, because of the scale of the region, has advantages in being able to impress upon the various governments, the regulators, the non-governmental organizations in the region, what it is that the internet can do, what it can't do, why there are problems, how technology cannot address those problems because they're social problems, and hopefully can head off some of the worst of the craziness at the pass. Thank you. Gorek, your view, looking forward into the near-term future. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and you have challenges before opportunities, so I'll start with the challenges. And I'm a challenges kind of guy. Yeah. Um, I think there are, I'll follow on from what David said, but on the other side, there are, we've been facing pressures and engagement with governments since that internet governance thing started two decades ago. What I foresee is in the last couple of years, I'm seeing a lot more engagement and pressure coming in from the business side 
like in the past, the business was happy to take the addresses, go away, pretty much pay the bill, go away, leave us alone. But with the critical dependency on things like RPKI and, you know, all the cybersecurity and everything else that goes with it, there's a lot more pressure emerging from these operators to say, hey, where is my SLA? Why can't I get hold of someone at APN8 24 by 7? And that, you know, when there is a RPKI style problem where they need to engage with multiple RIRs, they're like, what the hell is this? Why is it not easy for me to do this? And that is also a new constituency coming up. It's not the ISPs and operators that know whom to call when there's a problem because they are part of our community. It is the banks and it is the universities and it is government departments that are looking at it and say, oh, we need to do security, but I can't call someone. And that pressure is going to increase or already increasing quite a bit in the last couple of years. So there is that challenge that we may need to address a lot faster. And alluding to what Paul said earlier, if people are not happy with the services, they might go and find someone else. And that might be, again, the whole leasing discussion. I'll deal with these other people, right? The middlemen. That is a big challenge because that basically breaks the integrity of the registry, which is the you know source of our authority and the power. The opportunity is APNIC has been dealing with a lot of diverse problems over the last many years. We have such a large region, we have such a large number of governments, such a large number of stakeholders that I force that APNIC is probably best placed to deal with this heterogeneous environment compared with the other RIRs, for say, to more or less. And I think that is big opportunity for us to utilize what we have in the foundation, all the training, all the other relationships we have to kind of take lead on this and look forward to developing something that maybe we can work with the other RIRs on. Thank you. Akinori. Yeah, that's a um, very difficult question. I sometimes think about very simple question like who controls the internet? Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you do? Well. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Maybe the, all of us has uh, quite answers for that. And then uh, my answer would be that no single person controls the internet, but uh, everyone who running the internet is collectively controlling the internet. So uh, APNIC is uh, such a place that every address holders uh, gain the membership and then uh, pay the contribution and then half the secretary's staff work something, or the members themselves do something for the internet. Then through controls the internet, the one potential answer would be the government. But the more you think about how they control the internet, the more you are convinced they can't. Internet can be uh, run by the operators and those who are running the internet. So it is a very good place, APNIC is. APNIC is a collective, the people who are running the internet and then uh, as the membership maintain the internet infrastructure, then we still need to work on collectively to maintain the internet sustainability. So there's uh, not really you know concrete uh, answer about uh, how I think and then how we designed the APNIC in that direction. That's maybe my answer. Thank you very much. Elise, you were there at the start. I'm not saying we're at the end, but, you know. It's a, well, I'm out of the track. game. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's not specifically about addressing, but the thing that worries me about what we all built and what you all have built 
is how everybody can spy on everybody else. And we've enabled that in so many different ways. And addressing has helped with NATS and private addressing and tunnels and all sorts of stuff. And so that worries me because I think many of us don't even think of what our, how much of our private information is out there and publicly available in all sorts of ways. You can pay for it or you can just find it yourself. And so we've enabled that by having an address for everything that's out there. And I think that um, our younger generations, some of you in the audience and this little girl over there who I think is Azumi's and Matt's little girl, she's playing on a phone. I don't see people talking to people anymore. (laughs) You go out to a restaurant and there'll be four people at the table and they're all reading their phones, chatting with each other through text messaging or WhatsApp or whatever. (laughs) And so I guess my concerns, immediate ones, are just the lack of social interaction and the lack of privacy of the information we share. But for the future, I think there's a big addressing thing. And and one of the presentations was interplanetary networks. And even though IPv6 has a boatload of network addresses, if it actually happens that there's an internet on the moon, then you're going to have to have not just the campus networks and the regional networks and the country networks and the continental networks. You're going to have to have the earth network talking to the moon network. How many addresses and what's that going to be? I think it's so cool. It wants me to want to get back in the game. So that's me. Thank you very much. I want to leave you with these closing two thoughts from what I've heard today. And the first thought is that the communications enterprise for humanity is the most important thing we do. As humans, we live to communicate, communicate our experience, our history, our culture. And it was always in the role of the telephone companies that the telephone company was the most valuable company in any country. It employed the most people. It was the most difficult job. Now, they're no longer telephone companies. It's all of us. And communications is vitally important. We are never, ever going to even remotely handle the challenges we face as a bunch of humans on this planet without talking to each other. So what we do is vitally important. And the last 30 years has been in the form of an ancient Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times, some of the most interesting times we've ever had. We've dismantled the old system and we've built another one at astonishing speed. These things weren't even thought about in 1990. And now we look at a supercomputer in your pocket as a commonplace thing that five-year-olds play with while the rest of us old farts talk. Wow, you can't get more interesting than that. That is an astonishing change. The second thought that I want to leave you with is that the one thing that this is typified is that institutions are just people. That's all. They're just people. People built APNIC, and you and us are the things and the people that will keep it going. The institution is nothing without the people behind it. And if it's given you a bit of insight into our motivations as to why we got involved, hopefully that enthuses you to continue that engagement because without each of your individual help and assistance, we die. Institutions are people and this is us and this is AP Nick. Look, it's lunchtime. 
Thank you very much for your attention. I hope it's been of some interest and thank you to each of the participants. It's been an absolute blasting to relive those old times. Thank you indeed. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time, 